Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome to Your Case is on Hold, episode 18, broadcasting live from the JBJS editorial board meeting. Great to be in person, and I actually right, get to the see first my time colleague. for the first time. We've never <laughs> seen each other before. That's not true. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> welcome to those who are tuning in for the first time, and welcome back to those who have been listening all along. We are here today covering the second half of September. As we have noted previously, these uh, opinions are those of myself and Antonia, not representative of the JBJS Board of Trustees or the other editorial members. Please subscribe and um, be sure to give us a five-star rating on uh, Apple or Spotify. That really helps us out and helps the journal out. This uh, episode is brought to you by Clinical Classroom. And please do check that out at jbjs.org to further engage with that, as well as other very nice educational opportunities for CME and continued education. I am Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods and the Kurt Barlow Endowed Chair in the Defense of the Dark Arts, my colleague. Antonia Chen, uh, Deputy Editor of Adult Reconstruction, Knee, and just a muggle. No, you, I think you're, uh, aren't you hosting the uh, the uh, Vandalay uh, arthroplasty meeting at the Overlook Hotel in Sidewinder, Colorado? That's the only way to hang out. Yeah, if you, if you, if you, if you log on to the website and look to join that meeting, you can stay in room 237 suite. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so top of the pile for t- this episode. We have What's New in Hip Replacement by Morgan and colleagues. This is permanently free, so definitely check out what's new in the hip replacement realm. Uh, Host Perspectives of High-Income Orthopedic Resident Rotations in Low- and Middle-Income Countries by Roberts Al. We have Deep Learning and Imaging for the Orthopedic Surgeon, How Machines Read Radiographs by Hill and colleagues, which is permanently free. What's Important, Dealing with Gun Violence by Makiewicz, which is also permanently free. New Beginnings and Revealing Invisible Identities by Bellamy and colleagues. And then Diversity and Inclusion in Orthopedic Surgery from Medical School to Practice by Lamana and colleagues. It's quite a quite a bit of material in the top of the pile. All of it definitely worth your read. And do check that out at jbjs.org or in the print journal if you receive it, which hopefully you do. We're on to headlines. So my headline is uh, spontaneous lumbar curve correction following vertebral body tethering of main thoracic curves. This is by Catanzano and colleagues. Uh, This is a study uh, from San Diego Children's Hospital. And they're looking at growth modulation through anterior vertebral body tethering. Yeah, definitely check your phone out while I'm doing my thing over here. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that that says it all about this work, I think. Uh, it's a uh, anterior vertebral body tethering is a fusionless option for the treatment of progressive scoliosis. It's not total joint replacement, obviously. And they I'm have taking a, a nap. Is that right, okay? That's right. Just tune out 
and uh, I'll let you know. I'll tag you in when I'm done. There were 218 patients included in this investigation. These were individuals who had undergone surgical intervention and had a minimum follow-up of two years, so it's not the entire cohort of patients. Now, for those who work in this space, you'll know that you don't get the instant gratification of correction that you do with an instrumented fusion, but in this uh, technique, you're you're looking for a correction that occurs uh, more gradually and, and over time. So this study is very interesting because they were able to include a large number of patients and have at least minimum two-year follow-up to sort of gauge um, that progress. Now, the primary aim of the study was to evaluate compensatory correction of uninstrumented lumbar curves following the anterior vertebral body tethering procedure, and then to identify any correlation between changes in the lumbar and thoracic curves. The work is not hypothesis-driven. Nonetheless, uh, it is interesting in terms of, again, of this kind of clinical retrospective describing this group's experience. And because it isn't hypothesis-driven, we don't see a lot of hypothesis-specific testing going on. They're using paired samples T-test to compare correction at the first erect standing imaging studies and then at two-year follow-up visits. They use the Pearson correlation coefficient to determine the presence and magnitude of the linear relationship between changes in the tethered thoracic curve and the uninstrumented lumbar curve. And again, the emphasis of this work is that there has been research regarding correction uh, in uninstrumented thoracolumbar curves and in selective fusions, but this is a study that is able in a more measured and judicious way to look at this over the course of two years in, again, a, a study with more than 200 patients. The correction of the uninstrumented thoracolumbar curve can be expected after the initial tether placement. They found about 28% correction observed among all patients at the time of the first direct visit. And then they kind of, you know, it's a, it's maintains at about 30% at two years. And the uh, instrumented thoracic curve corrected 40%. They still emphasize that the indications for this type of procedure need to be refined There is the potential for expertise bias in this case, as well as a clustering effect because they're all occurring at Rady Children's Hospital in sunny San Diego, California, which is also where guests of your cases on hold um, have their stays, not just at the Overlook Hotel. There's so many options. Yes, there's, there's a lot for all guests of our show. I think it's a it's an interesting retrospective study in an emerging technology uh, to some degree in this space. So do check that out, uh, particularly if you're working in adolescent idiopathic spinal deformities, or just interested in pediatric orthopedics or spine. And now I want to hear about your headline, which is applying deep learning to establish a total hip arthroplasty radiography registry, a stepwise approach. So first, also, I'd like to thank you for what you've done. It also sets expectations for patients, which I think is a really good thing. So that's a good jumping point for the patients. This one's not for the patient. This is for researchers, um, and the idea is to jump towards doing um, deep learning and um, looking at radiographs. So we all get x-rays. Um, arthroplasty surgeons are definitely uh, culprits of doing probably too much radiation of patients. We give them every single follow-up, and whether or not they're necessary is a different story. But this is a study where they looked at over 800,000 hip and pelvic radiographs, and that's what they started with from over 20,000 patients. And they did this over a long time period, over 2000 to 2020. So this is at one facility. That's the one key there. 
And the idea is that they built a stepwise method of how to get an image registry. And the nice thing about this, I would say, is that studies are designed to be replicated, right? The idea is that you're supposed to write out your methods so that you can follow exactly what's in front of you. And in this case, they actually did. They did a stepwise method on how to develop an image registry in their own institution. Um, and they had a large number of patients, which is obviously an important thing. And they saved 5,000 patients to the side that they could test their actual algorithms, which is also important. Now, it's obviously within their own system. It's not outside the system. So that makes it a little bit different, but it'd be nice to have it outside the system. Um, but they did save 5,000 that were not included in there. So they did have a large number of patients and the authors made it sound that it was really easy to establish this registry. The author said they retrieved the imaging data for all remaining DICOM files from the previous step and saved them as grayscale images in PNG format. Well, while that's nice, that's not necessarily something that we can all do in our own institutions. In our institution, we needed to pull our DICOM images and we had to go in per patient and pull them out individually for all of them. So imagine doing that for over 800,000 of them, that would probably be really problematic and really painful. So while that step is the first step, and it's actually obviously a very vital step to be able to pull the images out of whatever system base that you have, it can be really difficult to actually do that first thing. So whether or not it's replicable, something what we'll have to see, and this is what's be nice from the study is to have someone else replicate this and see it actually comes to fruition. One of the things that is also slightly concerning is the high ex exclusion rate, right, of 24.7%. That's slightly high. Uh, now, that said, we all understand that it's going to pull a bunch of different images and it may not include the hip. It may not include the pelvis. And to their credit, the imaging system that they used was able to detect whether or not it was a hip or a pelvis based on different bony anatomy and landmarks. So things like foot and ankle, hand, things like that all got uh, taken out, which is good as, the, as it should. And, and, and then people could actually uh, read from that. So you can actually take out knees as well, too, because that can sometimes be um, combined, you know, the same patient comes in, they have hip problems, they have spine problems, they have knee problems, and they get x-rays in all different areas, and they might just pull all the DICOM files at the same time. So the key factor, I think, is to be able to understand how do we make the data going forward less, less inaccessible or more accessible, right? And what is corrupt data and how to correct corrupt, corrupt data going forward? There's also things that we'd want to know is like, how do you define poor quality? The author stated that they you know poor quality images were excluded and was poor quality alone just um, not being able to see what you needed to see, i.e. the aniversion and abduction, or it was the other thing else that defined what made uh, image quality poor. And the other way thing to think about too is how you determine fluoroscopy versus non-fluoroscopy versus that would more likely be in the operating room versus flat plate in the operating room versus flat plate outside. Other delineations that uh, radiologists can do from their end to make our job easier going forward to make an image registry. So it's nice that DICOM images already have you know, patient information with regards to you know date of birth and um, sex and things like that that are delineated. You can pull those so you can actually use those in database format. But can we use that more information from the actual picture itself to develop. So that'll come with time, I say. But it would be really nice to see this across multiple institutions. This is one institution with an, albeit very, very high N, which is great. But it would be nice to see if this can be replicated in other areas. Thoughts yep. on AI? Well, the study was done from 2000 to 2020, which is why they were able to have close to 210,000 DICOM files you know, one of the questions that that I wrote right here are, are there any immediate applications to patient care? And I don't really see that they are. I think a lot of the stuff that they're putting out seems to me hypothetical, theoretical. You know, they talk about efficient pipelines utilized by other institutions or registries to construct radiography databases for patient care. It seems to me that like you can do this any number of ways, and I'm not sure that their way is one way. It's not necessarily the best way or 
I think a lot of this happens in the background anyway with like, you know, we have a database through our uh, institutional registry that you can just, you know, using ICD codes, get patients that have these images, right? Like you can do it. And then pulling them out is the hard part, but they're there. To yeah. your point. And especially over a long period of time, we do have them. So I don't know. I just had a hard time with this, like understanding what's the, what is like the explicit need for this? One thing I could say that potentially could be useful is like at the very end, and they didn't mention this in the abstract, but it's in the, in the paper itself, looking at abduction and aversion. So from a database perspective, it's one of those things that we always ask the question is, you need more data to feed into an algorithm to make a determination as to what to do. So one question that we always ask, right? Hip spine, we're combined here together, right? What's the ideal location for cup placement for you know, a patient who has a certain degree curvature or certain pelvic tilt or sacral slope. And we think we know what it is, but in all honesty, I'm not sure we actually do know what it is. So because of that, maybe if we have more data that gives us, you know, measure of inclination, measure of abduction um, and, and aversion, that we can actually take this data, feed it in, see who dislocated, who didn't dislocate it based on a bunch of other measurements as well too. And if you can combine all those measurements together, then potentially you can determine, all right, this is the algorithm or this is where you should put the cup for this type of patient to keep them from dislocating. Potentially, you know, it's one of those things where it's not necessarily perfect. Now people measured, they had had two individuals who measured it and then they had a comparison of what they measured off of uh, the x-rays automatically. Now, you know, is that the best way to measure it? Not necessarily, right? When they said they had lateral, they have there's cross table lateral, there's oblique lateral, you know, there's frog leg lateral. These are all different methods of way people say like, well, I'm going to measure these kind of parameters, but they may not be perfect either. So long story short is the clinical applicability that's right now, I agree with you, is not great. Um, could it be useful in the future? I hope so. All right. Time will tell. With that in hand, uh, let's move on to, uh, oh, anesthesia is calling. I wonder what they want. Uh, it's <laughs> Serum glucose. That's yeah, what they, they want. They want to know the serum glucose of the patient. <laughs> That's exactly it. So this is the Your Cases on Hold featurette. And as our anesthesia colleagues are checking in with us, they want to know about serum glucose variability, which increases the risk of complications following aseptic revision hip and knee arthroplasty. This is by Go and colleagues from Thomas Jefferson University, continuing the work that Dr. Parvizi and you have embarked on for so many years. I, I feel like I've seen this kind of work already in a number of different uh, venues. Um, I, and I think you've contributed to led, it too. <laughs> uh, um, you know, one of the, the things that, that come to mind for me is, don't we know this already about like, primary total yes. joints, right? Okay. So if we know about primary total joints, why do we think it's going to be different in this setting? Oh, wait. Oh, it's anesthesia. They're saying that this case is on hold. The serum glucose coefficient of variability is just too high and uh, unacceptably so. So um, to, to delve into this uh, a little bit and to contextualize some of what I just said, uh, even before talking about the paper, this study looked at almost 2,000 patients collected over a 20-year period, 636 total knees and a lot more, almost double that, or actually about double that total hips. And they're looking at patients who have more than two post-operative glucose values per day or greater than three during the hospitalization. 
They use um, standard multivariable regression analyses, looking at the risk of 90-day complications, risk of PJI, uh, prosthetic joint infection, and they're varying this based off this coefficient of variability in the in the glucose control. And this is because they postulate rapid changes in blood glucose can lead to greater oxidative stress, low-grade inflammation, endothelial dysfunction, hypercoagulability, and impaired angiogenesis. All of that, you know, certainly makes sense. I think that the the findings were that the higher glucose variability was associated with an increased risk of complications and uh, infection, joint infection, following the aseptic revision procedures. I think a couple of things that you know sort of stand out here. One of like the um, the paradigms that they talk about when when you know teaching methodology is you have this uh, idealized scenario where there's um it takes place in a children's hospital because they're giving out toys. So it's like there are two children in a children's hospital and the, the the hospital has a program where they're going to, you know, go around with a cart and randomly give toys to like 10 kids during each day. And you say, well, you know, if there are a hundred kids in the hospital and one, you know, we're comparing patient A to patient B, what's their likelihood of getting a, a toy? And it's like 10 in a hundred, right? There's, or, you know, 10%. Except the part that they don't tell you is that one child is there for 30 days and the other one is just there for two days. So the one that's there for two days, they have a 10% chance over two days. The other one has a 10% chance for 30 days. So, right. So here you're talking about patients who are, you know, getting these measurements, the ones that are staying in the hospital longer they're going to have more chances for the glucose to be measured. And there may be other things. It's not. So first off, it's, it's kind of out of bounds if it's the glucose itself that's keeping them in the hospital longer. It's also out of bounds if there's other stuff that's keeping them in the hospital longer. And it's probably one of the two or a combination of the two. So um, that's one thing that came to mind that we're looking at individuals who are getting these things measured, not at random, but there's a specific reason why these things are being ordered. So how is that factoring into the determinations that are being made? And then my other question, given your expertise and prior work in this area, is again, what is this like? How is this giving us more information based on what we already knew in this setting? And then the other thing is that they do this, and, and you see it quite commonly, where they kind of extrapolate their finding and they talk about the risk of, of uh, infection is, is incrementally increased by every percentage point increase in the coefficient of variability. But the problem with that is that this model is probably not varied enough or the data is not varied enough to allow the model to effectively delineate those things. So if you're talking about around the 19.4% average coefficient of variability, so if it's like at 20 or 21%, then yes, this probably holds. But once you get to like, you know, if it if there even is such a thing as a 40 or 50% coefficient of variability, I don't know that there's that like exponential increase. There's, you know, there's going to be an asymptotic function here or something like that. So that, you know, in terms of like clinical impact relative to what else is in the literature and some of their kind of assumptions that they're baking in here, I think that there's definitely some concerns from the anesthesia team, not only about the glucose variability in this patient, but that they probably just don't have enough clinical support at this time to allow your case to go. Red light. So my case is done. Thanks. Green light. <laughs> red light. It's just red. And there's no yellow, apparently. There's so. no green light. <laughs>
So I agree with you. It's one of those hard parts where this definitely has been done in primary total joint replacements. Now we're looking at aseptic. Now the benefit of aseptic in theory patients is that revision patients are probably going to stay in the hospital a little bit longer, right? So the likelihood of getting more than one glucose level is probably higher. That said, it's also running from 2001 to 2019, which is a long time frame. And I don't know about you, but when I was going through residency, we gave D5 a lot, mm-hmm. right? D5 normal saline. So that already kicks glucose to a whole different level already, right? So is that something that's going to be variable and that's not you know, accounted for in here? Were the older revisions in there for a longer period of time? Patients who are non-diabetic getting you know, high sugar levels um, because of what they were receiving in the hospital as opposed to their normal baseline. Who knows? Uh, the other thing too, I think, is one thing that this really does point out is that this does have selection bias, right? To your point, like if you're going to get two a day, they're more likely diabetic. And they did say complicated diabetic patients were more likely to have higher you know, glucose variability, which makes sense. So I would say, take out the diabetic patients and see what happens. Is it still true in non-diabetic patients? Is this just a, a, a surrogate for diabetes, right? Are patients who are diabetic more likely to have complications? The answer is already known in literature to be yes across the board for everyone, right? So is that a surrogate for that? And, you know, while they did, you know, control for different comorbidities, things like that, I think obviously diabetes is the one that stands out as a necessary one. So in my mind, I would think that it'd be really nice to do the study with a continuous glucose monitor. And they did mention continuous glucose monitoring, but if you have something that are continuously measuring glucose on a regular basis, then you're not doing sampling bias, right? You're doing it at all time frames. And you also can take into account eating, right? And that's the other thing that they don't see here is that if a patient ate, of course, they're going to spike, right? And if you ate a, a three donuts and you eat a protein bar, you know, that's probably, or, you know, eggs or something like that, it's going to be a big difference with how your sugar variability goes. So your glucose variability might be indicative of your diet, right? You might have poor diet and that's why you have increased risk of complications and other things. So there's too many outside variables that they couldn't account for, I think, in the study that make it a little bit harder to do a take-home message here. Now, the only thing I would say is just be careful in your diabetic, non-diabetic patients in post-operative care. You know, so what we do now actually is in one of our hospitals, we do continue, um, con- consistent carbohydrate diets for all of our patients. So they hate us. The food tastes super bland, but the guess, good news is A, their glucose doesn't spike and B, they go home. So that would be my take home message is like, how can I utilize this is like, well, just make everyone's glucose more normalized, you know, so not necessarily something new that has really added a lot um, to it. But on the same side, there's things that we can do to temper patients. So I'd love to see uh if they go home, they then can't have their postoperative glucose measured two or three times. So you don't know. (laughs) And it's like the ostrich method. You stick your head in the sand and you don't know it's better. (laughs) Pioneered by Dr. Codman here in Boston. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Head in the sand for over a century. (laughs) All right. So uh, next we're on to our honorable mentions. These are the uh, remaining scientific uh, articles, all of which are well worth the read. We have Defining Minimally Important Differences in Functional Outcomes in Musculoskeletal Oncology by Gazendam and colleagues. Patients who undergo rotator cuff repair can safely return to driving at two weeks postoperatively by Badger and colleagues. This is 30 days free and also with a commentary. We have isolated lateral tibiofemoral joint osteoarthritis survivorship and patient acceptable symptom state after lateral fixed bearing unicompartmental knee arthroplasty at mean 10-year follow-up by Plancher and colleagues. That gets the award for the longest article title in this issue. The human torch was denied a bank loan. 
15% of Taylor osteochondral lesions are present bilaterally, whilst only one in three bilateral lesions are bilaterally symptomatic. Ricken and colleagues, permanently free, and there's an infographic. That one gets the award for using the word whilst in the title, and also the most creative use of the bilateral in a successive sentence. I'm going to read that again. Present bilaterally, whilst only one in three bilateral lesions are bilaterally symptomatic. Say that 10 times fast. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) A little tongue twister. Leaving you with tongue twisters and fun all day long. That's all we do here is fun (laughs) 24-7, fun and research, and a little bit of trash talking. Best way to go in life. That's right. All right. So that's that does it for this episode. I thought I hope you guys enjoyed us doing it together. And uh, stay tuned for um, the next couple episodes. We've got some great lineups with uh, guest co-hosts and guest stars. And we'll try to get things going here. But I'm certain that your case will still be on hold. Enjoy your hold. 